reading is Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 uh, to 4, verse 1. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Just, have, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their goal is their stomach, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. This is God's word. Thank you, Peter. Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter as well, or Pete if you prefer. I'm assistant minister here. It'd be lovely to meet you afterwards if I never have, maybe over lunch. Um, just before we pray and begin with this text, um, uh, I've got one bit of sad news. Many of you will know Vaughan Roberts, who's a, a minister and a friend of the church. Uh, his dad passed away recently. So I um, just want to tell you that because many of you will know and love Vaughan. And uh, the funeral is on Tuesday. So um, perhaps you could keep him and the family in your prayers. And uh, as we begin in prayer, let's remember them as well. Let's pray. We eagerly await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and our Father, how much we feel that at times like these. We pray that as we come to this Bible passage, you would, you would bless us, Father, whether we're eager to come to it or reluctant this morning. And we pray you'd, you'd remember uh, Vaughan and his families and others who are grieving as, as we um, fix our thoughts and our hearts on our saviour, Jesus Christ, who is coming back and gives us hope. Amen. Let me tell you about one of the scariest things I think I've ever done. I was on um, some uh, travels in Brazil, and I was traveling with some friends, and we visited Rio. We were doing some charity work, and we got to go to Rio de Janeiro. Incredible. I was enjoying the city until one of my friends said, hey, why don't we go up there on the mountain and do some hang gliding? And um, this is awkward for me because I'm not very good with heights. Which is ironic, actually. Um, uh, very ironic. Uh, anyway, I got peer pressured into it because all of them were really keen to do is hang gliding, um, throwing yourself off a mountain with nothing but a, like a wing above you. And so I ended up being sort of bullied into it. Anyway, I found myself the following day on the side of this mountain overlooking Rio. I mean, beautiful city down below, Copacabana there, Sugarloaf Mountain. But then me strapped onto a hang glider with a guy, an instructor next to me, saying, just do what I do. Just copy me. In particular, he says, I remember these words. He turned to me and, he, and we're like side by side with the bar in front of us. He says, when I say run, you run. 
And, and it's because he walked me to the edge of this wooden ramp, which is about 10 meters long, and it just sloped off into fresh air. I mean, there's nothing. Like, you run down this ramp into fresh air, and, the, of course, the wind takes you, theoretically. Anyway, we have half an hour sweating out at the top of this ramp, waiting for our turn, and eventually, we, we get up there, and he's, he's just calm as you like, waiting for the right gust of wind, you know, and uh, I'm there next to him. And eventually, he turns to me, and he goes, run, <laughs> like that. I tell you, I've never run so fast in my life. So we pounded down this ramp, and woof, of course, it's incredible. Once, once the wind takes you and your heart's no longer in your mouth, wow, this is amazing. Having someone like that to copy is a good thing in that situation, isn't it? Do what I do. Do what I do. I suppose you're familiar with that from everyday life, right? You, you get a, a sports coach, you want to learn how to be better at sport. Someone says, look, do what I do, I'll tell you how to be better, copy me. You get a, a professional who's willing to mentor you in your career, brilliant. Yes, please. Do what I do. Copy me. Or um, perhaps you're a parent and there's an older parent who you can learn from. You think, that you, I'm going to copy you. I, just, I want to learn whatever I can from you. So copy me is a familiar phrase in our lives that we're used to. In our passage this morning, this um, bit at the end of Philippians 3, Paul says, copy me. Do you see? Chapter 3, 17. Have a look. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Copy me, or copy anyone you can find who lives the same way. Copy me. Thing is, is there not a bit of you which, if, if you're like me, thinks, I could never say that to anyone. Copy me. I mean, imagine saying that in your Christian life. Don't, you're investigating Christianity? Don't worry, just copy me. You know? Gosh, that's an act of arrogance, doesn't it? I don't, well, maybe it's just because I'm British, but I don't think I'd naturally say that to anybody. And yet, here Paul is saying, copy me, imitate me. Find someone else, if you like, copy them. He's on the theme of knowing Christ. And and the the copying in today's passage really takes the theme of heaven. Copy me as I press on to heaven. It's a bit like when you you go to a restaurant and um, you haven't quite decided what to order yet. Got that nice anticipation. You think, what shall I have? And then uh, a waiter brings an incredible dish of food to the table next to you. You know, and you catch a glimpse of it. And, wow, that looks really nice. And you, they set it down there, and the guy next to you, at the table next to you, starts tucking in. And you say, uh, could I have what they're having, please? That looks really, really good. We saw last week that Paul's been talking about knowing Christ. He says, I've, got a, I've had the first taste of knowing Christ here on this earth. I want some more. I want to, as I press on towards heaven, I mean, that's all that's in my mind. I just can't wait to have that, the, the full deal. A full meal when I see Christ face to face. So when, when he says here, I'm going to press on towards heaven, and he makes four statements, as we'll see, that's what he's got in mind. I wasn't quite sure earlier in the week how all this stuff fitted together. And, so, and sometimes, as you'll notice, the paragraph, the way they've edited the Bible in English doesn't necessarily seem to flow. But I hope I'll see you. He's making four statements. And as Phil Olcott pointed out to me earlier in the week, it's a really beautiful picture of the Christian life, these four things. You can't just take one. If you just take one and hold on to it, it imbalances the whole thing. But all four together, very beautiful, as we wait for our Savior. Okay, here's the four things. I expect to reach my goal. I expect to strain towards heaven. I expect to attract enemies, and I expect to be gloriously transformed. So just have a look at each of those in turn, okay? First, first statement he makes. I expect to reach my goal. Look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on 
to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. I just want you to note the confidence with which he talks. So he starts off, doesn't he, verse 12, saying, I haven't already obtained all this. I haven't arrived at my goal. That is the resurrection of the dead, what he's just been talking about. I'm not in heaven yet. But, do you see what he says? Verse 12, uh, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Verse 14, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me, heavenwards, in Christ Jesus. God has called me. Or verse 16, only let us live up to what we've already attained. See how he litters his writing with things that say, I am, I am confident of this. I am going to heaven. I expect to reach my goal. There's a, a famous tombstone of a Christian believer, and um, I don't actually know who, which, which believer it was. I haven't been able to find out, which is probably how God meant it. But it had their name on it, it had the date they were born and died, and then it just said, heaven was in him before he was in heaven. You see? He's not, he wasn't in heaven yet when he was alive, but heaven was in him. He was totally confident he was going there. Heaven was in him. I remember one of the first Bible studies I ever sat in as a Christian believer. It must have been when I was 18. And um, the, the one question that sticks in my mind that the Bible study leader asked was, how confident are you that you'll go to heaven? And I thought, well, pretty, well, pretty confident, I suppose. Pretty confident. And then he said, no, no, out of ten. Zero is no, no confidence. Ten is full confidence. I want you all to write it down. Oh. So in a rather awkward silence, all of us you know, wrote down uh, a number out of ten. How confident are you of going to heaven? And then he got us to share them. Brutal. So the first three answers were very disconcerting because these other 18-year-old boys just went, ten, ten, like that. It was like Strictly Come Dancing or something. I don't know, ten. Um, and then uh, I was very relieved that the fourth guy said, 7.4. <laughs> and, uh, and that made it okay for me to say 8, which is what I'd written down. Oh, I guess I'm kind of a good guy, but I'm just an 8. I don't see how you can say 10. It seems quite arrogant to me. Anyway, they went on, and there were more 10s in the circle. What I didn't have was the same confidence that Paul has here. I do expect to go to heaven. I am utterly confident of it. 10 out of 10. Of course, he says, if you disagree with this, if you weren't sure, like I wasn't sure, verse 15 is quite reassuring, isn't it? All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, God will make it clear to you. You're allowed to ask. You're allowed to investigate. I'm very grateful God gave me more time. But he does talk with a 10 out of 10 confidence. I'm going to be there. Resurrection of the dead because of Jesus Christ. I'll be there. Okay, so does that mean then, I see you take that statement out of context. You say... So the Christian life is just like kicking back on a lilo, sipping a pina colada. I mean, what? I, I, I'm, I'm going to get there. Fine. I'll do what I want. Second statement. I expect to strain towards heaven. See how that balances? With, I expect to reach my goal. I also expect to strain towards heaven, verses 12 to 16. See the way, the way he phrases this, verse 12. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Same words again, verse 14. I press on towards the goal to win the prize. It's actually the same word that he uses, that he used back in chapter 3, verse 6. 
if you remember last week, he talks about how he persecuted the church, and Paul was famous for that. I mean, he'd hunt down Christians and try and put them to death. He said, the same way I pursued Christians, I now pursue heaven. Same word in the original. And then the way he describes it, to, to win the prize, we were supposed to think of an athlete running a race. You know when they're in the blocks at the start of a race? I, I tried that a couple of times at school. It's really uncomfortable to hold yourself in that position, you know, when you're, when you're down there straining every muscle for the gun. And then, of course, when the gun goes, you're off. I mean, there's no, there's no wasted energy for the next 100 meters. I'm, everything to, about me is straining towards the goal. And then when they get to the tape, you see this in the Olympics, don't you? It's like everything, like trying to get over the line. The eyeballs like popping out just so it could get over the line a little bit quicker so they might win the race. I'm straining every muscle to get over the line, to win the goal, to finally be there at the resurrection of the dead. So there's no reclining in Paul's life. I'm straining everything. This is why in a famous book called Pilgrim's Progress, um, John Bunyan, the writer, describes an allegory of the Christian life. And from the moment Christian, the main character, hears about the Christian message, what he, well, what he does is put his fingers in his ears and he shouts, life, life, eternal life, like that. And he runs away from the earthly city towards the celestial city. And the rest of the book is, is the story of his journey there. He strains towards the goal. I haven't got there yet, but I will get there. Now, before you misunderstand me, this is not a, a beat-up. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to make you feel terribly guilty because that's not the way Paul describes it. Do you see how it's, it's all in the first person? It's all very autobiographical. I do this. I do that. If you want to know Christ better, copy me. But he, he's not hammering them about this. He says, this is my experience. I strain towards heaven. How about you? On the Olympic theme, let me um, invoke Mo Farah for a moment. You know, brilliantly successful runner. I watched a documentary about him in the summer just before the Olympics. It's incredible the amount of work he puts in. But I, I take it, if we could be inside Mo Farah's head during a 5,000-meter race, there would be moments where he thought, I'm tired. <laughs> you know, you're on the back straight or something on lap five, and you're thinking, I am knackered. But I take it also that Mo Farah, in order to, to be the guy he is, he, he has a way of renewing his efforts, of saying, yeah, but... Imagine the moment when I cross the line. Yeah, imagine that feeling when I finally get there, when I win the prize. I'm going to carry on. So Paul would say, look, I, I strain towards that moment. I can't wait for that. My own athletic experience is much more limited. Uh, but I did row for two terms when I was at university. I was in the college rowing team. And uh, what I discovered is there's an intensity that runs through university rowing that I never knew about such that when you're training for a race at the end of the term, I was only ever in one race, but in the training, um, they would push the guys in the boat, all eight of us, to put so much in that if you vomited after the training session, that's seen as a good thing. So you, you, you row, 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 and then <gasps> it's all over, and one guy flops out of the boat and vomits into the bushes. I'm sorry, it's disgusting. It was disgusting at the time. Uh, but the, the idea, the principle they were trying to encourage in us is you leave Nothing behind. If you, if you haven't pushed yourself that hard, then you know, what were you holding back? Paul's principle would be similar in the Christian life. He'd say, I don't want to get there to the final day when I see Jesus Christ face to face and finally I know him perfectly and I've attained to the resurrection of the dead. I don't want to think, oh, I wasted it. I have wasted it. 
all the opportunities that the Lord gave me, all the, all the things I could have done for Christ, the ways I could have known him better, even through suffering, wasted it. I expect a strain towards heaven. Did you see how it's motivated because he's had the taste of the meal? He wants to know Christ better. Okay, that's the first two. I expect to reach my goal. I expect to strain towards heaven. Thirdly, I expect to attract enemies. Verses 17 to 19. Have a look. Join together and follow my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have, have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So he says, I, I expect to attract enemies. Or if you can put it negatively, he's been talking about copy me or copy anyone in whom you see the same life, but don't copy everyone. I mean, there are people I, I definitely would discourage you from copying because they live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, just note, he, he's not always like this. I feel like I'm having to defend a slightly feisty family member. Okay, he doesn't always talk about Emily, Emily's enemies. Uh, earlier in chapter uh, three, he talked about dogs. He doesn't always talk like that. In chapter one, this is incredible generosity in Paul, as we've seen in recent weeks. He talks about anybody who's preaching Christ, I'm willing to rejoice in. That's terrific for me. But this is feisty, Paul. You know, this is where, where a lot's at stake. I want to just try and show you why there's such a lot at stake. These these people seem to be Christians. At least they'd say they are. I'll tell you why I say that. Okay, Verse 18. For I've often told you before, and now I tell you again, even with tears. Obviously, it's something emotional for him. He might not have expected, rather than an out-and-out atheist, who he might have expected to be like this. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So perhaps in their words, they say, I'm a friend of Christ. Yeah, I have a cross around my neck or whatever. But they live as enemies of the cross of Christ, you see? So it seems to me, the best guess, it's hard to be sure, is that these people would be in churches, but they live a different way. So, so what's going on here? How can he talk about enemies within the church? Well, it seems from the way he describes it, enemies of the cross of Christ, that the cross of Christ is a bit like Marmite, you know? I either love it or I hate it with my lifestyle. Why? Is this thing so ugly? I find that quite funny because I think it actually is quite ugly. I managed to borrow this from somebody. But it, perhaps it makes the point. Why, why could this be so ugly to one person such that they, they would be an enemy of it and so attractive to another person that they'd be willing to live by it? Well, I, I, it must be because in the Bible, the, the cross is either the, the worst news in your life or the best news in your life. The cross is the worst news in your life because it says to me, you are so bad that God had to come and be punished for you. You're that bad. And on the other hand, it can be the best news in your life because it says to me, you are so loved that God was willing to come and be punished for you. You see, but if I can't get beyond the first one in my life because I, I can't humble myself that much, then I can't get to the best news in my life. And Paul says that makes enemies of people. A few um, 
uh, 10 minutes before a friend of mine became a Christian. I, I had the privilege of being there when he came to Christ. And we were talking to him. I remember him saying, I can't do it. This, uh, the, the cross. We didn't have this here. That would have been quite weird. Uh, become a Christian. <laughs> or I'll hit you with it. Um, but he said, I can't do it. I, I can't shelve my pride in the way that becoming a Christian would require me to. But wonderfully, incredibly, the Spirit was at work and we talked a bit more and 10 minutes later he, he saw it as the best news in his life rather than the worst news in his life because God loved him that much. If the cross is just an example to you, then it's, it's actually not very offensive because when Jesus says, whoever would come after me must take up their cross and effectively suffer and die, then that doesn't make any demands on your life. If the cross is just an example, ah, oh, Jesus, how loving you are that you showed us a, a, a loving way to behave, to pour out your life for other people. That makes no great demands on me. If, if the cross is a substitution for me, you're that bad, but you're that loved, that's starting to make demands on my life. That's saying you need to live a different way from now on because of what God's done. I remember um, a few years ago, I was talking to a senior minister um, and... Uh, I said, look, I'm considering Christian ministry. I might get ordained, but I'm not sure I've got the, the fight, the appetite in me for having the sorts of theological fights I see you having, you know, fighting for things. And um, I said, look, you just seem to enjoy that sort of thing. You're built that way. It's your personality, but I'm not really up for that sort of stuff. And he looked at me. I'll never forget. It was chilling. He said, I hate that. I hate fighting. I get scars every time. I do it with tears, but I do it for the honor of Christ. You see? Because this is worth that much. I'm willing to fight for it. I find it very instructive the way Paul talks about this. You see, he says, I do it with tears. Verse 18, I've often told you before, so presumably it was part of his leadership training or just his regular preaching in Philippi. Even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. You can talk about enemies of the cross of Christ uh, with tears and with telling, if that makes sense. So this is what Paul has here. I, I say it with tears because it's so emotional, it's so hard for me, and yet I am willing to tell you that there are enemies. I'm willing to warn you. If you don't have tears, but you do have telling, and you're just denouncing people the whole time, aren't you? You're an enemy of the cross of Christ. You're an enemy of the cross of Christ. Well, something's gone wrong there. There's no emotional connection with what you're saying. But if you do have tears about the unity of the church, you're, you're sad about it, but there's no telling, you're never actually willing to stand up for the honor of Jesus or what it means in someone's life, then something's gone wrong there as well. You're not actually willing to talk about the things that need to be talked about, you see. Tears and telling come in Paul's example. I have to leave that one there. I expect to attract enemies as I go towards heaven, Paul says. And fourth statement, um, I expect to be gloriously transformed. I mean, the, the tone soars here towards the end. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. This is very subversive, and we might miss it because we didn't live in Philippi 2,000 years ago, but he's kind of just chipping away at the Roman Empire where he says these things. Because when he talks about citizenship in heaven, citizenship was a big deal in Philippi. They'd been granted special Roman status. They, they uh, were given it ahead of the rest of the empire. So Paul's saying, you know, our citizenship is in heaven. 
Oh, well, not in Rome. Well, yeah, you have an earthly Roman citizenship, but the one that matters, that's already, already been given to you in heaven. Also, the way he talks about Jesus Christ, you say, see, he says, we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The way they most commonly referred to Caesar in the Roman Empire was those two words, savior and Lord. So Paul just drops it in here. Well, yeah, by the way, we're waiting for a savior, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, not Nero. The Lord Jesus Christ. And then he talks about the power of Jesus Christ, verse 21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our bodies. You think Nero is powerful with all his legions and imperial guard? Hmm. You, you wait. You wait and see what happens when Jesus Christ returns. I expect to be gloriously transformed. In particular, at the end of this sentence, he gets towards talking about his body. You see, that he will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. That means that if your, if your body is failing this morning or at this stage of life, then I hope this encourages you. If you're a believer in Jesus, he will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. The resurrection body that Jesus had that will live on forever have one of them. It also means, of course, that if you're facing opposition at the moment for being a Christian, then God will transform you gloriously by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. And I hope that his power is an encouragement to you as well this morning. Presumably then, when we finally cross the finish line, we finally have those gloriously transformed bodies, and we know Christ fully, then all the sacrifices that I've made along the way will seem utterly worth it. And it's that that gets into the conclusion. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who are my love and long for my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And he's kind of wrapping up everything from chapter 1, verse 27, where he first talks about standing firm. Four statements. He expects to reach his goal, to strain towards heaven, to attract enemies, and to be gloriously transformed. Maybe I could just make two points in closing. Firstly, on the theme of copying. Who are you going to copy? You'll copy who? I mean, that's, that's what he was instructing them to do in verse 17. So who are you going to copy? Strikes me that having a mentor in the rest of life seems like a wise thing to do in my profession, in my sport, in my family, whatever. So having a mentor in the Christian life seems like a wise thing to do. Who's it going to be for you? It might be that there's actually someone around here at church, um, perhaps someone who's slightly further on in the Christian walk than you, and um, you can copy them. I think there's probably a furtive way of doing this, you know, where you could just copy them privately. Just always watching them after church, sort of you're standing in the next conversation, just listening in for what they say. Uh, you're in the same home group as them, and you're writing down their prayer points. Yes, must learn that as well. You could copy them in a furtive sort of way. I mean, that's fine. You'd learn quite a lot. You could just copy them in an honest, candid way, which might be just slightly embarrassing, but it might go something like this. You just talk to them after church today or on another day, and you say, look, this is a bit awkward, but can I copy you? You know, and, and if they were here, they'll know what you mean, so it won't be that awkward. Uh, but can I copy you? I'd love to just learn some more stuff about living the Christian life and pressing on towards heaven. And here's the thing, right? If someone asks you that, don't be British about it. I, f- I forbid you from being British about it. You mustn't go, no, 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 don't copy me because no, you'll, no, you'll see too much bad stuff. No, go and find someone else. Don't do that because that's sub-biblical. I don't think Paul would do that. Say, oh, well, okay, look, 
To be honest, there's, there's lots you're going to see which I'm embarrassed about, but I'd love to help you press on towards heaven. So um, who are you going to copy? Maybe, I mean, maybe if it works for you, you could copy one person every year. You know, I'm going to copy you this year, and then next year I'm going to look for someone else, and then I'm going to move on, and I'll maximize my benefits of copying people. Or maybe you just stick with the same person for life. I don't know. Or even if um, having someone here doesn't seem to work, there was a Puritan, uh, one of the Puritan Christians, who pointed out that when holiness is pressed upon you, when, when someone shoves holiness in your face and says, be holy, it mm, seems very unattractive. I find that quite refreshing from a Puritan that they were willing to say that. But he says, um, when you read about it in the lives of other Christians, like when you read a Christian biography, yeah, I mean, that, suddenly it becomes really inviting and attractive, and I want to live that way. So perhaps there's something on the bookstore you could pick up or you borrow a book from a friend and, and you can copy someone that way. But who are you going to copy? And finally, this is really the, the sting in the tail. If you're going to talk about copying, who's going to copy you? We were at the men's breakfast yesterday and, and there was a rather touching moment where uh, Phil Alcott, was, he was standing here um, interviewing Richard Perkins, who was the speaker, he was standing here. And I didn't realize, but Phil was able to talk about how he'd learned from uh, Richard Perkins on summer camps for teenagers. And he said, look, Richard, I, I learned a lot from you in the way you mentored people and discipled people. And he stood here and he said, well, that, that's, I'm really glad about it. And I did want to pass you on some stuff. But actually, I learned it from Richard Kokin, who was another minister. And presumably, he learned it from someone else. And you see, all the way back, it becomes a chain that way. Lots of us have learned from Phil in some way as well. So you, you pass these things on as you copy other Christians. But who's going to copy you? Maybe if you're a dad, this might be instructive for you just to think about it, as it has been for me. I mean, thing, things like, you know, you know, you know how your kids copy you. This is like nothing you can do about it. Sometimes they copy the awful things about you. Like when you shout out something at another driver you shouldn't have done. Um, if they're going to copy you, why don't they copy the good stuff, right? So do they ever see dad pray? Do they ever see that? You initiate a prayer at the, at the dinner table or when someone's sad or when someone's really happy and you just want to thank God or when you want to pray for another person. Do they ever see dad pray or do they ever see dad with a Bible? Even though he's really, really busy, there are times they see him with a Bible on his own. Do they ever see dad having a go at talking to someone about Christ, whether Christian or not, even if it's falteringly? Or do, do, they, do they know what dad gives money to? You know, maybe, maybe the family have decided to give away money, but the kids just don't know about it. Can you tell them and you can, can you pray for the people you're giving money to? There's just some ideas I've been thinking through. If the kids are going to copy me, what do I want them to copy? Of course, this applies to any parent, indeed to any adult. I mean, indeed, to everyone, I wonder, is God calling you to share some aspect of your life, for, for someone to copy some aspect of your life which you might not have thought of before? If there's illness in your life at the moment, is it possible that God could call you to share that with someone else? To invite someone into the pain and say, look, this, this is really hard for me. But I'm going to let you in. I'm going to show you how it feels and how I'm trying to cling on to Christ and look forward to heaven. Is, is there a disagreement in your life at the moment with somebody and you can invite another Christian in and say, look, this is really hard. I've struggled such a lot with this person, but let me try and show you. I'll try and express what I'm doing about it, how I'm taking it to God and looking forward to heaven. Or is, is God calling you in any form of suffering to say, 
Come on in. I'm going to shed a lot of tears just to warn you. But copy me if you like. Copy what I'm trying to do. Show them, in other words, that uh, heaven was in you before you were in heaven. Let's pray about that now. Father, on that glorious final day, when we see him face to face, we give you thanks that we will be there, will be at our goal. All the sacrifices that we might have made now, which seem big in our minds this week, this month, this year, will be utterly worth it. Even, Father, dare we say, if we have to attract enemies of the cross, we look forward to being gloriously transformed. Father, please would you put positive role models in our lives who we can copy. I pray that if we're not sure about that, you might send someone who we can imitate. And insofar as we're a role model to others, I pray we wouldn't be crushed by it, but we'd be liberated by knowing that you love us that much. We get to share the joy of knowing Christ with others. And we pray you'll do it by the power of the Spirit as we press on towards heaven. Amen.